Welcome to the Financial Advisors Advisor, the podcast offering guidance and advice on all things concerning financial advisors, RIAs, and the practitioners. Brought to you by Elite Consulting Partners, it's the go-to podcast for any financial advisor in the wealth management business. Learn more and subscribe today at EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcast. And now, here's your host, Frank LaRosa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our podcast. This is Frank LaRosa, the CEO of Elite Consulting Partners. And of course, I am the financial advisor's advisor. Here with me today, as always, burning a little bit of a late Friday afternoon hours or Friday evening hours is Dale Dempsey, my COO. Howdy, folks. How's it going, Dale? Feeling great. Recording from the new location. It's funny. There's like, what is there? There's uh, definitely cooler back here, which is cool. Yeah, there's like hula, like a luau stuff on the on the walls, but this is cool. This is good. Having a great Friday. Awesome. Definitely excited to do this podcast. We're running this a little bit late today, so we're going to get right into it. And uh, it's going to be a little bit of a lightning round kind of podcast today. But before I get started, as always, I want to just thank everybody that has uh, subscribed, listening to the podcast. We're getting some great feedback lots of downloads, lots of subscriptions. Uh, We really appreciate it. This is, again, a podcast designed for those of you that are listening, advisors out in the industry. It's our way of sort of giving back and really talking about the things that maybe some people don't talk about. Maybe they're obvious, maybe they're not. This is not one of those podcasts where, you know, we're going to have a guest on every other day to talk about why their firm is the best firm since sliced bread. This is really to give back to advisors and answer the questions that they want answered. So do us a favor, if you could, go to our website at EliteConsultingPartners.com, check out our podcast page, and send us emails. We've gotten some great questions over the last couple of weeks on different topics. One of the topics is uh, what we're going to talk about today. And so uh, just do us that favor, do yourselves a favor. The more emails we get, the better the questions uh, we get, the better the podcast. So thank you very much. So with that said, one of the things that came in several times and continues to be a conversation that we have with advisors, I had one yesterday, as a matter of fact, is uh, we're going to be talking about hybrid RIAs and the myths that surround going RIA versus RIA with a friendly BD. And what is a hybrid firm? But we hear that all the time. And I want to just cover what I think sort of are the three biggest myths surrounding hybrid firms and going RIA. So before I get into that, I think it's important that we just hammer out a few general terms. So get out your uh, spiral binders like like we're in class, and we're just going to hammer through a couple of these things, really just so that we're all sort of talking about the same stuff. You ready, Dale? I got my composition notebook, my highlighter. Okay. I'm set. All right. So before I get into this, the myths, the terms we're going to be using today are RIA, right? Registered Investment Advisory Firm. And if you're an advisor at one of those firms, you're considered an IA, an investment advisor. I hear all the time where guys and gals will say to me, oh, I want to, I want to be an RIA. Okay, that's not really factually true. You want to be an IA who owns an RIA. So let's just get that out of the way there. When you talk about RIAs, We use terms like custodians. That's where your money is, right? When you go 
and you become an IA and an RIA and you tell your clients and they ask you, well, Dale, where's, where's my money? Like, they're not going to know the firm. They're going to want to know where their money is. So you might hear firms like Fidelity Institutional, uh, Pershing Institutional Advisor Services, TD Institutional, Schwab Advisory Services, Raymond James even has a, an RIA option under their umbrella. And so that's typically what you're hearing about, right? That, that's where all of your advisory assets are. Pretty simple. On the brokerage side, so when we talk about BDs, um, whether it's a hybrid firm, hybrid BD, or an RIA with a friendly BD, that's where you're a registered representative underneath a corporate broker-dealer. And the firms that you're typically using for your client assets, clearing firms, are Fidelity, Custing Clearing, or for those of you that have been in the business for a little bit longer, you know, formerly known as NFS. Pershing, Raymond James has a correspondent firm uh, business. So there's smaller independent broker-dealers that use Raymond James as their clearing firm. RBC is another one. And then there's some smaller ones uh, that sh- that are generally used for smaller broker-dealers. I think Core just changed their name. It's like Axum or so- something like that. And then there's Apex. And a uh, pretty, pretty interesting firm there, there at Apex, growing fast, but typically right. smaller accounts. So we're not going to really, look, we're not, this podcast today is not really to go into every, each one of those things, right? We're not pitching any one of those or no but those are those are the common ones those are right those are the bigger ones right those are the common ones and so so you have an RIA you have a broker dealer and then you have this third entity that we're going to talk about today and it's really where I think the industry or the a large portion of the industry is headed I've written a couple of articles where I refer to this sort of as swimming upstream for RIAs that is the hybrid broker dealer a hybrid broker dealer basically is a corporate entity, and on one side has a broker-dealer, let's call it ABC Securities, and maybe they're using Fidelity, custody and clearing, for mutual funds and annuities and stocks, bonds, all the brokerage business. They also then own an RIA, we'll call that ABC Wealth Management, where all of the advisory business is with maybe Schwab or TD or both. They, a lot of a lot of uh, larger firms, hybrid firms, will use both. They they could even use Pershing, TD, Schwab, or any combination thereof. The reason why I think that, uh, and so underneath underneath that, the corporate entity owns both of those underlying companies. So if you're at that firm. You are both a registered representative and an investment advisor underneath one corporate entity. But you can have some of your client assets with Fidelity and some of your client assets with with TD, as an example, depending on what you're trying to get accomplished with your clients. You know, you might have you might run into a wealthy client that has a lot of money at Schwab and they want to work with you, but they don't want to give up their Schwab relationship. They like having their money at Schwab for some reason. Well, if you are at a hybrid firm that allows you to use Schwab, you can still work with that client and bring those assets over to the Schwab platform. So you're winning, your client's winning. Those are basically the sort of the three entities that I want to sort of reference today. 
Are you following me, Dale? Should just, I recap? I was, I'm just thinking <laughs> no. that was a lot. So, so RIA is you're an advisor, you own your own registered investment advisor firm, broker dealer. We're talking about, you know, essentially your registered representative of, and then you know, an alternative to that would be hybrid broker dealer where the broker dealer and RIA are under the same incorporated company. Essentially, correct. Okay, okay right. Yep. All right, I'm following you. And again, this is not a sort of class on what is an RIA and what is whatever. Because there this, are some variations of that too, right? Exactly, I mean, like, yeah. exactly. So, so we're let's not, not get into that. Time. So don't beat me up and don't start sending me hate mail because I didn't describe something the right way. Well, yeah, going into this, we did we did discuss there are, there's some outliers, there's, there, but there's those are outliers. some outliers. Uh, but really the most important thing, and it's because we talk, we, we talk to advisors about this all the time, are essentially the three biggest myths that we see in advisors going down this path of, I want to be an RIA. And we're sort of going to do them in reverse order or not in any sort of importance, but number three is pretty important. So number one really is the myth of, oh, I'm going to have more flexibility if I move move away from a broker dealer uh, and I'm going to be able to grow my business faster. The, The second myth is, well, I don't have to deal with FINRA anymore. So that's cool. Uh, and then the third one, which really is probably the number one reason, is I'm going to make more money. I hear that all the time. The, what's your rationale? I'm going to make more money. Right. It comes out too. It doesn't always come out at first, but it comes out. Oh, eventually, constantly. right. Well, we did a podcast about that. It's not about the money, but it's about the money. And I, I'll throw in a a soft fourth, and that's all. And that's ego. I think there are a lot of advisors that just, you know, they want to be able to say that they own their own RIA, just like advisors, some some bigger teams that I've had conversations with that talk about starting their own broker dealer, which is a nightmare. But actually, I do like the way you did these because usually it starts with, I'll have more flexibility. Right. So we're just going to get into that one. So number one is, I'm going to have more flexibility. And that usually, when I talk to advisors, they, and I start asking them, well, tell me what it is you're looking to have more flexibility with. And you hear all sorts of things. I want to write books. I have, a, I have an awesome newsletter I want to write and I want to start charging a subscription fee for people to sign up for it. I'm going to make all this money. I want to go on TV shows and you know I want to be the next Jim Cramer. I love when I hear when guys say, I want to own a, I want to start a hedge fund. Oh, like, yeah. oh my God. So you've been an investment advisor for the last 25 years selling mutual funds and annuities uh, and maybe doing some really good asset management uh, with SMAs and now all of a sudden you want to start a hedge fund. The point is is that a lot of the reasons why, and you need to think about this if you're listening and, and you're thinking about going down this road, is what is it that you're really trying to accomplish? When you say flexibility, what is it that you can't get at a broker-dealer or a hybrid broker-dealer that you think you can get when you own your own RIA? And that might come down to you maybe just not being at the right firm because- there's a difference between FINRA rules and regulations and firm policies, and we see that all the time. And so as far as number one is concerned and flexibility, that just comes down to doing a little bit of homework and really realizing what it is you want to be when you grow up. Because you might think you want to own a hedge fund and run a hedge fund because it sounds really cool, but that's not reality. You know, and and just... Be, be real about what you are trying to get accomplished. The second one, oh, I'm so tired of dealing with FINRA. 
I, I'm so tired of doing my continuing ed courses, blah, blah, blah. I, I just, you know, you know, we had the whole sort of DOL was coming down and that was going to be a problem. And, and, and advisors just get frustrated and, and they feel like, well, if I, if I just go RIA only, I'm not going to have to worry about compliance anymore. And that's really not true because they're still going to have to deal with the SEC. And I would say, arguably, the SEC is tougher than FINRA. If you start an RIA in your first 12 months, it's not a matter of if you're going to get audited. It's a matter of when and how long are they going to take. And they will, unlike FINRA auditors, and I've and I've been involved in those where a FINRA auditor will come in, you know, they'll request some of your documents and your trade blotters and all those things. You know, they pretty much just go into your conference room and they'll spend a couple of days there and and they're pretty much in and out, right? Unless you're doing something really bad, they're pretty much in and out. SEC, the SEC comes in and they're the real deal. They are coming in loaded for bear and their fees on a whole, as I've seen, are significantly higher for things like you didn't check some, something off on your on your form ADV and they're going to whack you for $25,000 because you missed it. Meanwhile, you probably pay your attorney $25,000 to to help draft the, the the form. And so I just think that that's another huge huge uh, myth that you're going to it's going to be much easier for you because you don't have to deal with FINRA anymore. And that's by the way only if you're an RIA only you own an RIA, right? Because if you if you are an RIA with a friendly BD, even if your RIA is 80% of your total revenue, it's still considered by FINRA as an outside business activity to your broker dealer. So the friendly BD still has some responsibility. So you're still not going to really get away from whatever FINRA issues you're trying to get away from. I think that's not really a good logic. That's definitely a myth. Right. But number three, the biggest myth of them all is I'm going to make so much more money if I just own my own RIA. Yeah, that ties into two, uh, where you talk about the audit. Right. 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 Well, that's a huge component, right? So what, Dale, what Dale's referring to is one of the biggest drivers of your net and the revenue when you own your own RIA is what it's going to cost you to handle all of your compliance, which is something that you should not take lightly. Like I said before, the SEC comes down with some pretty hard, harsh fees if you're doing things the wrong way. Uh, So what we typically see, if you really want to get serious about it is, you know, you're going to have to have a really solid compliance officer. Can I stop you? (laughs) Okay. Because I hear this all the time. People will all the time say, well, I'm just going to outsource this for there's a company that does, I forget the name of the company, $5,000 a year, $10,000 a year, something like that. And I'm trying to explain to them, okay, that's great, but they don't take any liability. Oh yeah, they do the compliance work you know, and give you advice and it. consult with you. Right. Sure. But when the SEC steps in to do an audit and they fine you. Yeah, they step away. Of course they step away. Right. And so that's where you think you're going to make more money. Well, now you've lost time. Now you've lost money. Yeah, well, look, you get you in this world, you definitely get what you pay for. And with fines that can range from, you know, 10, 20,000, I've seen fines that were 200,000, 250,000. 
you definitely don't want to mess around with that. So, you know, if you're taking my advice and you ha- and you have a real business, which I'm sure you do, if you're listening, you know, you're, a good, a solid compliance officer is going to cost anywhere between, let's say, in the low end, one hundred twenty-five thousand to maybe one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, which is going to eat into your margins. On top of that, you're going to want to hire a compliant, not like your five thousand dollar a year person. You're going to want to hire a real compliance consultant that's going to really guide you because even your compliance officer may not understand all of the nuances of filing your form ADV the right way uh, and all of those things that go into it. But a compliance consultant does. And again, they're not taking responsibility, right? They're, they're telling you what to do. And they're walking you right to the line, but they're not signing the documents. Yeah. You have to sign the documents. Yeah. It's also in, in a lot of cases, not easy to find a good compliance officer. Oh, it's not because if they're at a good if they're at a good firm, they're being paid well and they don't really want to leave and go to a firm that's sort of starting from scratch and trying to figure this thing out on the fly, right? So, but a good compliance consulting firm is going to cost you 50 grand. Maybe maybe 30 grand it's depending on what ballpark. you need. So, it's yeah. it's a it's a lot of money. And that's a that's a more or less a fixed cost. But you're still taking all the liability, right? You're still taking on all the liability of making sure that what they're telling you to do, you're doing the right way and following up. So on top of that, where we get into the nuts and bolts of this thing is your trading costs, right? So there's trading costs involved. Are you paying uh, per trade or are you paying a uh, basis point to you know TD or Schwab? And if you're doing this on your own and you're going direct to, and for purpose of this conversation, I'll just talk about TD as an example. I think they're a great firm. I think their technology is awesome. But we're just going to pretend you're going to TD. You're not going to be as large a client as a hybrid firm that has 10 times what you have at the firm. And so your pricing is going to be higher because you don't have the scale to negotiate a great rate. Yeah, it might be better than what you're paying today because you're at a wirehouse firm or you're I don't know what frame you're at, but you're at you're at a wirehouse firm or sort of a traditional independent broker dealer where their pricing is, is a little bit higher because maybe they're using Pershing and their pricing is higher. So you're you're gonna miss out on scale. The same thing goes with technology, whether it's e-money, Pershing, Adapar, Orion, all of those tools, Salesforce, you're still you're not gonna be a big client of that firm. So you're not gonna get great pricing. And they might say, oh, we have uh, we have some group pricing or whatever. It's not quite the same um, as, again, affiliating with a larger firm. And a lot of those custodians use the word institutional. There's, right. a, there's a reason for that. Right. I Look, I also see, and I've had these conversations with a few of these custodians, is that they are, because they're, they are also looking at their service models. And so the more smaller... RIAs they bring on, it taxes their service model. So they bring on a $40 million practice, a $50 million practice. And I hear that uh, they're looking to have those firms roll up into bigger firms because it's it's taxing their service model. So that's something that you have to worry about is you may go to that institution thinking that this is a great move for you, but all of a sudden they might suggest or politely suggest or strongly suggest, hey, why don't you join up with this other practice? 
and look, part of it might be for scale, uh, but I, but I think it's important that you understand those dynamics when you uh, look at and make a decision to go within, you know, to go to your own, open up your own RIA with, with a friendly BD. Because on top of that, as a friendly BD, now you still have to also worry about trading costs on the broker-dealer side, depending on what kind of practice you have. So the reason why at the very beginning of this thing, I, I said that I think that we're seeing a lot of firms swim upstream. Man, it took us a long time to get to get to this point, right? I was... I know, I know. I know, I know. But uh, it's, uh, waiting, it's, wait, good- it's like waiting with bated breath. What's Frank's point? My point was the reason why we think these are really myths and are different than the facts is because we work with a lot of hybrid firms. We see the numbers. And in order to sort of to illustrate this, I think an example of a large practice that we worked with is is perfect. So we, we've been working with a, with a large practice, let's call it, $800 million in, in AUM. And they were coming from a, what I'll call sort of an independence on training wheels. They were, they started off with, hey, we want to, we have, want to do all these different things. We want to go independent, um, fully independent because we want to be a 338 because they ran a corporate retirement plan business and, and they needed more controlled and scale. So they need to be a 338 fiduciary. And we want a better pricing because the firm that they were at, which was Wells Fargo, uh, their pricing was very wasn't bad actually because of the size of their firm, but it wasn't as good as they could it could be. And they started talking about going RIA and and this this firm and I call it a firm because they it was a real business. Uh, they owned the building, they had staff, they had it was it was impressive, very professional, high end firm, great group of people. And so we went through all of this myths and ideas and thoughts and pricing and technology. And, and really, at the end of the day, what we were able to do, they realized that to have to go out and hire a person that knows how to deal with the SEC, compliance person, they went through the math. And again, they were doing close to $5 million in revenue. So it wasn't like they didn't have the money or couldn't afford it. But they're business owners, and they wanted to make sure they were getting what they were paying for. And so we went through the math and ran some pro formas, did a lot of due diligence on different firms, looked at different technology, and then looked at hybrid firms with the same technology and ran pro formas. And what we were able to get accomplished, again, this is probably as close to a pitch for our services as, as I'm ever going to come. So I apologize, but it is what it is. Uh, what we were able to accomplish is because of the firm that they affiliated with, which was Triad Advisors, and I was sort of just with them over the weekend, which is why this is sort of also front of mind, that we were able to negotiate tremendous pricing on their advisory business using TD Ameritrade and on their transaction business with Fidelity and and their payouts and all that stuff with Triad. So much so that we got their their net. So forget about, you know, payout. Everyone says, oh, if I go RIA, I get a hundred percent payout. It's not really doesn't really matter. All, all that matters is your net, which was covered on one of our podcasts uh, a few weeks ago, uh, episode two, I believe. We, we were able to get their their net before local expenses to 83%. So 83% on, call it $5 million. Their trading costs were really low. I don't really want to get into that. Sort of there's some disclosure issues there. Are you going Are you going in this direction? And stop me if I'm wrong. It, I think the biggest deciding factor was the, the liability they would take on 
as an RIA owner right. versus, and it, what was it, nominal? That was 100%. So that the, not a, it wasn't 100%. 100%, it was like. Uh, right, but where I was going with this, in the final, one of the final decisions and, and things that they, they factored in was that when we ran through the math of them doing it themselves, there was like a, th- I'll call it a three and a half percent, maybe four percent cost differential in them doing everything and taking on all the liability. And they were smart enough to recognize what that was worth to them and the amount of time it was going to take and the risk. And and they would rather put that risk on the firm that they were affiliating with, which was Triad Hybrid Solutions at the time. And again, this is also something we covered on one of our podcasts when it's when we talk about all about the net. They were smart enough, and I would implore every one of you to think this way. They looked at that as an investment in their business because they knew that the time it was going to take for them to do all the other things they can put into going after bigger accounts, finding more clients, going after more corporate retirement service business. And it was worth it, right? And, and they can back it up now too from what what, what they've said. Oh, they're crushing it, right. Yeah. But look, the other piece of advice that we we gave them, and, and I want to be perfectly clear here. I, I'm not saying that going and opening up your own RIA is a bad thing. And having a friendly BD is a bad thing. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is do your homework, right? Because if you don't have the right scale, in, in my opinion, I think you need to have a B at the end of your AUM number in order in order for it to really start to look appealing. Um, but well, not, candidly- Not just that though, right? I mean, you, the way your business is formed, that could that could say a lot too. There might be multiple Bs. Well, I've again, seen, it depends on your business, yeah, right? You got to do your homework, right? But, but again, and one of the other strategies that I advise them on, and I guess if the folks at Triad are listening, they're going to let a little bit of the cat out of the bag, but whatever. When a firm goes from 800 million to 2 billion, which is, which is their short-term goal, where they would think about now opening up their own RIA, and, and by the way, because their advisory assets are with TD underneath their the corporate RIA, if they were to do that and open up their own RIA using TD, all of those client assets move over without an ACAT. Their, their account numbers don't change. The clients just need to sign one advisory form, and that's it. So it's sort of like gives them an out down the road. But the strategy really is then once they hit you know $2 billion, is to go back to their firm, and this is advice I would give to anybody that's thinking about this, and just have a polite renegotiation, right? Make it worth it for both parties for for you to stay on their hybrid platform versus going out and starting your own RIA. It's worth the conversation. If they say no, they say no. But if the gap was only, let's call it four percentage points, even if it's five percentage points, Maybe when you're at $2 billion, it goes to three percentage points. Again, now it becomes a, you know, a decision on what's that worth to you. And so really that's what I'm getting at here is that I, and I have these conversations all the time. I just had one yesterday with an advisor. I went through the same thing. And he's going to do the right thing, which is what I'm asking and suggesting really everyone that's going down this road to do is do your homework and have to, go talk to a couple of hybrid firms. 
that will are willing to run a pro forma for you and because you're going to get scale on pricing, scale on technology, run a pro forma and at least compare the difference. Don't just go down the road of an RIA without doing your homework because I think that you'll find, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised and it will really give you something to think about before you jump into something that really can be sort of a beehive of, of issues down the road. So with that said, I hope that wasn't too long for everybody. I do believe that the industry is going to go that way. I think a lot of advisors on RIAs, IAs are going to are going to start going that way because technology has gotten better, margins are getting better, and it's becoming more appealing for registered investment advisors and IAs to really start affiliating with with hybrids that are becoming the sort of the, the new fad. By the way, I think clients, not to leave them out of this, I completely, but I think I think the experience is better for clients too, from what I've what I've come across. Oh, I totally think it's I think it's it's great for the clients. So anyway. Thanks for joining the conversation. Uh, we do really hope that it, you find that it was time well spent. I know it was a little bit, a uh, little bit longer and a little bit more technical than I than I prefer to get at times, but it's important. And um, thanks for joining. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Hit the like button. Share us. Follow us. Comments. Phone calls. We love it. And can't wait to talk to you next time. Yeah, look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Financial Advisors Advisor Podcast, brought to you by Elite Consulting Partners, the leading experts in advisor transitions, succession planning, and broker-dealer and RIA M&A consulting. If you're looking for strategic advice or solutions on any of those topics within the financial services industry, or you just want to subscribe to the podcast, head on over to EliteConsultingPartners.com. Consulting Partners.com.